Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Blend Marketing. These friendly folks work exclusively on marketing tour and activity companies. They've just released a free ebook that shows how you can increase your direct bookings by stealing the OTA's top tricks. Check out that free guide at torpreneur.com forward slash blend, B-L-E-N-D. Welcome to the Torpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow Torpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. And welcome to episode 126 of the Torpreneur Podcast. We are joined today on the show by John O'Sullivan of Depot Adventures. I say depot, you say depot. What is it, John? Yeah, that's exactly it. I say depot, you say depot. I don't care. Whatever you want it to be. Sure, sure. And uh, you appeared, I couldn't believe this at a double check. So you were on episode 25 of the Tourpreneur podcast. That was only September last year. And September last year feels like a whole other century to me. <laughs> it's yeah. like it was a hundred yeah. years ago, to be honest. <laughs> and we were talking about Walks 101 and your free walking tour model. And we got a lot of interest in that episode because a lot of people like myself are fascinated. How does this actually work? Like we've seen them, particularly in Europe. And uh, we, we covered that. And then now you're called Depot Adventures. How did, how did that come about? Yeah, it's been something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, Walks 101 was a name that I thought of like on a whim when I needed to invoice someone in London when I was a freelance tour guide. Uh, I thought, well, an intro-level course is a 101-level course, so that's what I named it as, not knowing that that was a very American thing, uh, the 101-level university course, and not knowing also that for people who English is a second language, they would call it 101 tours, 101 walks, 101 adventures. They would do all sorts of weird things with it. Mainly, though, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of brand that I wanted to represent what we do. Like to me, the guides are at the center of what we do and I wanted to represent that in a brand. And so I um, engaged a marketing agency to kind of basically get into my brain, get into what I, what my brand values were, what I wanted my brand values to be. And they asked me a lot of biographical questions. And one of those questions was all about how I discovered travel. In 2009, when I first went abroad, I um, lived in a flat share in Ireland with people I'd never met in my life. And one of them, not knowing me at all, knew I was new to the country and offered to pick me up from the bus depot and to escort me home. Uh, and when she did, she had all her friends over there uh, and had a big like trad music session and they had a big meal and they welcomed this guy. They had no need to do that, but it just made me feel so at home and so welcomed. And so that was the kind of idea for depot. And then if you look at our brand identity, the logo has like a little smiley face in it to represent like the, what, how that's what our guides do. Our guides make you feel like you're a mate of theirs. 
Sure. And to get the timing correctly here, the timeline. So did you change to Devbo before COVID hit or after? I was I was scheduled to change to do the changeover on the 12th of April. That was the plan. Um, oh. And so right in the thick of it. And so that didn't happen. Um, I, I planned like having a big launch party and inviting all the concierges and all that stuff. And I realized that COVID was a time to rebuild and a time to like optimize the business. And I thought, you know what? Soft launch is better than delaying this launch. Um, the longer we run with a name that I already know I'm going to change, the more useless it's going to be and the more wasted effort I'm going to have on this old brand. Um, and so I just did a soft launch. I just quietly changed over the website in the dead of winter, Australian winter. We started July here. Um, and yeah, slowly but surely, people have been, you know, learning about it. But it's, you know, rebranding is more of a verb. It's like something that you actively do uh, over months and years. And so I thought I, just, I should just get it started. But I remember there was a period online where I was seeing you everywhere. You were taking lots of videos. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're out and about with your camera. <laughs> I'm not a person to uh, sit idly by. <laughs> I just go crazy. And so here in Melbourne, we had the most restrictive lockdown in the world for 111 days. We weren't allowed to go more than five kilometers from our home. Uh, and we could only go outside for one hour a day for exercise or essential groceries or urgent medical care. And while that worked, you know, we're, our case count has gone from mid 700s a day to zero for 25 days now, starting today. It also meant that we were very restricted. And I find that like restrictions are kind of an uh, interesting creativity zone. And so I had some staff and myself who were just like, let's, let's learn a new skill. Let's learn how to do video. And so um, we started just experimenting with every kind of live streaming. We did like a big, like kind of pub quiz style event yeah. um, for all of our past customers. We tried doing um, Reddit live streams, which was crazy. We had like 80,000 views on some of our videos there. Uh-huh. We did Instagram live. We did Facebook live. Uh, we were doing daily YouTube videos. So like little 10 minute things. And we did this technique where... I was basically able to do that thing that you see in the morning news where you can throw at the weatherman in a different location. They talk back and forth. Yeah, We did that like live to tape. It worked quite well. I'm pretty proud of some of the, the, the products we put out, especially in the kind of like the, the June, July period in the early time. You can definitely see diminishing returns as, as we lose energy. But um, it just didn't find an audience. Like we, there's, we're competing with the whole world of content creators. Luckily, it... Um, taught us video at a time when we didn't realize we would need it because then along came a partnership uh, with Amazon where we started working a lot more in video. I have to say a big thank you to John Lynch over at Peak because you featured on um, their sessions, Grovember, and uh, I'm watching them on demand. So John was able to ask you a few questions. And uh, so thank you, John, for doing my research for me. But you you said mm-hmm. in Grovember that you the last three quarters were down 96%. But previous to that, you had four quarters of triple-digit growth. How do you cope with that, John? I mean, how do you deal with that? Um, I don't know. I guess the way that any of the rest of us are, it's, it's shit. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just shit. <laughs> like, there's no other way of, of putting it. Um, but for me, I think I, I was comforted in the fact that I knew that my business was going to be safe as long as I could hibernate it for long enough. I in the fortunate position of not being invested in buses or retail space or bikes and I'm paying a lease on or something like that. And so um, I was lucky enough to have my wife like had a paycheck that could support us during this rough time. And then the confidence in, in that it's going to come back. It will come back. 
it's just a matter of like how many acorns we have buried. And so for me, it's I found comfort in the fact that I couldn't do anything. Like the government told me I wasn't allowed to operate my business. And so I actually found some um, freedom in that, I guess. I didn't stress too much. It was much more stressful in like March before the government came in and told us what to do. And we had to proactively make the responsible call or operate irresponsibly and be worried about what competitors were doing and all that stuff. That's that's the part I'm most anxious about coming out of it. Yeah. And you, you run tours in Sydney as well, correct? Sydney. And then we're also uh, starting up in Perth right now. So when Melbourne was shut down, was Sydney open? It was, but um, the there's just no appetite for travel here. Zero. That's where the 96% downturn in revenue came from. There was a all not only were our international borders closed and they continue to be closed, but interstate borders were also closed. I right now can't go to Adelaide or Perth um, because the state different states are having different judgments. The state borders are acting like international borders. Also, um, we couldn't. Look, legally do tours, so even for locals, you couldn't do them. Right. So, Got you. you know, it's nothing. Yeah, it's interesting looking at Melbourne in particular. I mean, it seems like you've had smart government there, although I'm sure it was painful going through it. And here in the state of Vermont, we had the lowest infection rate in the United States. But in the last two weeks, it's spiked to a point now where multi families are not allowed to get together. So, at time of recording, it's Thanksgiving week. People can't get together with families. So, it's very easy to get complacent. And the, the governor was, um, what he said here was they traced it to Halloween parties because, you know, Americans like Halloween and they go and he said, yeah, people were going and having a few beers and forgetting to put the masks on or adhering to the six feet distance. So it's very easy for it to come back. So now we're in a situation where it's lockdown again when you know we were doing so well. Dr. Fauci was complimenting Vermont on how it was handling the, the pandemic. Uh, I hate to say it, but uh, you heard me say this in November, but I think there's much more room for pessimism than there is optimism in the near term right now, especially with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. I think that nobody should be looking at expanding. The best advice that I got was my accountant who back in January, I was looking at um, taking out a retail space here. It was going to be a five-year fixed-term lease. It was a bit of a stretch, but I could make the numbers work. And she said, she was Italian, uh, Italian, Australian. And she's like, look at what's happening in Italy right now. This is like mid-Feb by the time she's saying this. She goes, I just would not be making any moves. I'm so glad that she told me that because my business would be bankrupt. I would be in serious, serious wow. trouble if I had not had her to like be my my soothsayer. Um, yeah. And so I've been trying to do that. It's it's sad to say it, but I think that people should be bracing for two to three years of yeah. of like cases coming and going because to tell people anything other than that, that, oh, maybe we'll be back by next summer is just going to put other tourpreneurs in a bad position. They're going to, you know, take on risk when they shouldn't be. Yeah. And good on you for listening to that advice. Cause I know many of us would be like, ah, oh, no, we'll be fine. Let's do it. Let's open the place up. Cause as, as an industry, we're all optimists or the vast majority of tourpreneurs I speak to are optimists. Yeah. So good that you took that advice. But it's, it's a bushfire. It's a bushfire right now. It's something we're very familiar with in Australia. Yeah. We're in the middle of a bushfire. Yeah. And we know that at the end of a bushfire, there's a lot of regrowth. A lot of plants die out. Our job right now is to survive. Yes. If we can survive, then we can return back bigger and better without all the competitors that we have out there. What were some of the other lessons you've learned during the pandemic? Look, the virtual tours has been the biggest the biggest thing for me. I early on kind of saw virtual tours, and not just virtual tours, video experiences, things done in a virtual space as a future, a possible future for our industry. It absolutely is the future. It's just a matter of whether our industry embraces it, in my view. And one of the other things I did during lockdown is that I started a startup. 
um, where I'm doing virtual events at a massive scale. It's called Speakeasy. Um, and we're doing like a, a trial right now with one of Australia's largest pub quiz companies, trying to replicate that kind of offline experience in the online world. And so I've been learning a lot, educating myself a lot about video experiences. And the, the biggest thing I've learned, the thing I think people are making mistakes on, is they're not adjusting for the medium. Like I, I studied communication, and there's, a, there's a, every communication 101 class that everyone takes reads an essay called The Medium is the Message, uh, which is all about how, like, the, whether it's radio or TV or a walking tour, that is the first thing. It's more important than the actual content of the, of the thing. And what I see a lot of happening is people taking their walking tours and then filming them or doing them to a live broadcast and expecting that to work. And it doesn't. I, I think like being on a tour, just being physically in the same space as someone is a fundamentally different experience. So the, the biggest lesson I've taken is how can we take the virtual, take the things we do in the offline world and adjust them so that they are fundamentally new and different products on there. And then how do we make a business model around that that makes it so that we're not doing it for peanuts? Yeah, absolutely. And that takes me on to the the, the next area I want to discuss with you is that you are one of the Amazon Explore partners. So you are offering tours of markets in Melbourne, correct? Well, so the one that you can see is of the yes. markets in Melbourne. I'm actually, I've got uh, a number of other experiences in the pipeline as well across the country. The whole project is still in beta. If you go to Amazon Explorer, you'll see that you have to click on an invite link to get to get in. I yeah. believe, unless they've changed that, I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, we have a number of experiences that we're doing on there. And yeah, it's been a very interesting experience moving from giving a tour in front of 20 people around the city to holding a stick with a phone on the end of it and talking to someone in Chicago about Melbourne. <laughs> so, so how have you dealt with that? Because you can say it's so radically different. I mean, the skill set's the same. The skill set's exactly the same. So it's not, it looks different and there's a little, there's the medium's a bit different, but the core competency is the exact same. You need to be able to uh, improvise and talk back and forth with someone and listen and be that kind of active listener. I've heard one of your other guests, I forget her name now, the woman in Chicago, the improv acting. Margaret, uh, Margaret Hicks. Margaret, yeah. yeah. So Margaret, what Margaret always talks about, about yes, Andine. It's exactly the same in the virtual tour space. The only difference is, you know, adjusting for the medium. So people don't want to do a three-hour tour on a virtual space. They want to do a shorter tour. And so how do you adjust to that? People also, this is the craziest one that I've learned. When people are shopping around for virtual tours, the experience is so, so, so different. The kind of customer journey than the offline tours. So if they're on an offline tour, they disembark at Melbourne Airport. They grab the visitor guide. They exchange your money. They say, oh, look at that. The queen is on our money here. Um, they get on the, on the sky bus to come down here. And then while they're on, they hear the Australian accent that tune themselves. And then they go get brekkie and they learn that brekkie is what we call breakfast. And they get a smashed avo on toast, which is the big thing that everyone gets in Melbourne. And then they show up to your tour and they already have this kind of understanding about some few basic things about Australia. And virtual tours, they chose me because the Tokyo sushi making experience wasn't available. And they haven't even thought about Australia for a second before they get there. And so there's like a solid five minutes of conversation about, oh, it's daytime there. <laughs> um, oh, it's summer there. What's that like? Um, just these these kind of assumptions that you know people you, know, you don't need to talk about that when you're in a physical tour, but in a virtual space, the customer knows so much less than you think. And is it right that they they don't have to show themselves on the other end? I was looking at the Amazon Explore site. Yeah. So that must be really weird if you can't see the other person. 
Yeah, so the key things to know about Amazon Explorer for anyone who's considering doing them, it is all private. It's all one-to-one. So these are not the group join-in experiences that people are used to. And it is two-way audio and one-way video. And so what that means is that, yeah, you can't see them the whole time. You'd have to ask Amazon about what the strategy is behind that. My guess is that it has to do with bandwidth. And probably people don't feel comfortable showing themselves to a stranger. Definitely. That's my guess. But yeah, it, it actually, it's fine. Like it works fine. It actually makes it so that you're a little bit more in a cross role. Just like when you're tour guiding, you're part tour guide, but part shepherd. Like you're making yeah. sure people don't walk in front of traffic and all that stuff. Now you're part tour guide and part video producer. And so like when I'm talking on my experience, I'm holding the gimbal. It's the stabilizer that holds the phone thing. And um, I'm not only sharing about the history of Melbourne, but I'm watching my camera movements. And I'm like working with a placement. And I'm also able to do stuff that I can't do in the physical tours in that I can restrict information. So, yeah. for example, in the center of Melbourne is the old GPO, General Post Office. It's this beautiful Gold Rush architecture building right on Burke Street Mall. I show it in every tour we give. I love this building. If it's a small enough group, I'll walk them inside because inside is now an H&M. It used to be a post office. Right. And my how things are faded. Yes. <laughs> the H&M there. But it's a wonderful <laughs> thing to be able to show people. Uh, the inside of this building, thanks to H&M being there. But now with the virtual tours, I can actually control my camera movement to not show the H&M sign. Right. So I'm showing them the GPO, talking about the history and why post offices are so important in Australia, being this colonial outpost, eight-month steamship journey to get here. Of course, post is important uh, and getting people to think about that. And I say, now, it, we wouldn't put a government office in this beautiful building today. What do you think we put here? It used to be post was the most important thing. What is the most important thing to our society today? And I guess a bit. And I pan the, I tilt the camera down to H&M. And it's a bit nice. of a laugh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. People. But also, like, I do make the argument. I say, look, fast fashion is this thing that we as a society value. And I make this whole point about how buildings that are most beautiful are usually occupied by the things that society holds most dear. And I can't do that progression in person because you can see the H&M sign right away. Now, full, full uh, admission here, I haven't done a live stream tour yet. It's on my list of things to do. So I might be speaking out of my rear end here. As I understand it, what I've read on various reviews, you take somebody into a market, into a store and speak to some of the vendors and they, they share what they're selling and what they have there, et cetera. So I'm just curious how that came about because this is brand new for us as tourpreneurs, but you go to a market trader, say someone who's selling rice balls and accoutrement i mean how how are they reacting to this new way of working i mean you have to do your groundwork you wouldn't walk into a store with 12 people without having worded up the shopkeeper beforehand yeah, yeah. so we've definitely done that but it being amazon they are interested in the business of e-commerce and so they want to sell things on this platform so not only is it a tour but the idea of it is that people can look at the screen and you can actually the customer can click on the screen at any time and i can see what they're clicking so if i'm passing a shop with a didgeridoo uh, in it, the customer can click the didgeridoo and I can see it. I'm like, oh, let's look at the didgeridoo. They can ask questions about it, ask the price. I can ask the shopkeeper on their account. And if the customer wants to purchase it, I can click a few buttons and the Amazon purchase button comes up on screen and they make the payments immediately, instantaneously. And I am the one responsible for fulfilling the order uh, for that. And so I, I can set my prices appropriately for shipping that over and that can be expensive. But... Yeah. By by having that components, it's pretty easy to get shopkeepers on board. I say, look, these are customers like any others. They just happen to be in the U.S. This is a market you'd never be able to access. 110 million people uh, who are Amazon Prime customers in the U.S. So it's not a hard sell. The biggest thing is you have to find 
like the old crotchety guy who worked at the butcher place at the uh, Queen Vic Markets was never going to be the guy for this. Yeah. So I have to find the kind of people. We all have them. Those, those core suppliers who we can go to, who we will be willing to give anything a shot. You start with them. You don't start new relationships at this point. You work with trusted people until you get your legs under you and get a better idea of what it is. Yeah, I was impressed when you said at Grovember that you can't beat the OTAs on SEO and marketing, but you can beat them on local knowledge. And I think what I'm hearing here when you're putting these together, that's why Amazon are interested in working with you and probably why they've selected you, John, is you know the area, you know the people, you know the vendors and the businesses, so you can pick out which ones will uh, be of interest to those who want to go on the tour, but also, like you say, that are going to be amenable to being part of the tour. Did you have to scope all of that out and then send it almost like as a business plan to Amazon for their approval? How did that work? Yeah, it was a little bit less about me proposing. It was more me responding. They're, right. they're being curatorial uh, with the operators that they work with right now. And so it was um, kind of pleading my case that they should work with me on there. It came at a really advantageous time for me because I was doing nothing because <laughs> it was in the middle of lockdown. So it worked really well. It's been incredibly labor intensive, uh, the process, hundreds of hours of work. It's not something that I can get up right away and learning an entirely new skill set. And so it has been um, getting them to agree to work with me was only the first step. And then there's a number of other steps kind of after that um, behind closed doors that I probably can't um, speak about as much uh, or else I risk my NDA. <laughs> um, don't want that. But the thing that I would tell other operators working on this is, be ready to like give 25% of your time to this thing if you're going to do it. Otherwise, it won't be worth it for either one of you. But if you can make it through, you know, the I'm not doing this for charity. I'm not doing this because I'm a big fan of Jeff Bezos. I'm doing this because there's money in it. And that's what I found so far. People will look at this experience after hearing this episode and they'll see that it's $85, which is 120 uh, American. And people are booking it, which is surprising to me. But I am not my customer. Where are your customers coming from? It's 100% Americans. Right. The biggest thing that I find when I talk to other operators about this thing is they look at the prices of things and they say, oh, that's, that's not something that we would sustain. And I heard this in your interview just recently. You talked to, oh, shoot, my name is the woman in Japan doing virtual tours. To Lauren Shannon. Yeah. Arigato. Yeah. Arigato. Yeah. She was talking about um, how customers are just never going to spend that much on virtual tours. And so you need to think of it as a marketing exercise. It was really interesting to hear that perspective. It's just one that I just disagree with because. I don't think that uh, we can afford to be working for less than we're worth right now. We need to be finding a way to encourage the customer to pay more. And the great thing about Amazon and Airbnb right now is that they are changing the customer's perception about what the value of these things are. And so in the past, people have said, oh, I'm not going to pay more than 10 bucks for this stuff. But we can ride in the wake of, of Amazon and Airbnb and charge 100 bucks for these experiences. And yeah, it won't get as many bookings on there. But we can be making profit from the first booking, which is, for me, a revelation. Uh, I work in the you know FIT space, the free independent traveler space, doing join-in public tours where I have minimum numbers. That's how all of us are in tourpreneur land, right? And so this idea of having to operate like a private tour where I'm making money from the first one, I can actually afford to have a smaller margin if I'm making money from the first booking on there. And so that's been kind of a, a big revelation for me. Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com.
Do you work with Amazon in the same way that you'd work with a Viator or one of the main OTAs where they take a commission per booking? Yeah, Amazon is basically just an OTA. They just they have a very unique product offering. Uh, are you able to disclose what the commission is? Uh, probably not. Probably not on that one. But it's it's not atypical. I'll say that. Okay. It's it's what people would expect. Right. Um, it's just fascinating. And I agree with you about, because when, when it first came out, and I got into a bit of trouble because uh, <laughs> our friend Michaela in Prague was uh, the Urban Adventures have the one hour Prague tour. And I saw the price and I think it was 85 bucks. I was like, 85 bucks. Wow. It must be my Welshness, right? I'm like, I wouldn't pay 85 <laughs> bucks. But the, the challenge is, you know, I've gone on virtual tours with Walks, which was more of a Zoom presentation. I did that also. I did the Tower of London tour. Yeah, and it was good. It was 10 or 15 bucks. And then I'm seeing something for 85. And okay, I work in this bubble. So I get to speak to you and there are people I trust and they're like, no, it's worth it and whatever. And But if I'm the general public, it's like, how do we convince people that, oh, this is live streaming. This is one-to-one. This isn't a YouTube video. You know, this this is private. I think that's the big challenge as far as I see it. But I, I'm always having to remind myself, John, I'm in the bubble and I'm not out there with the public. So I'm Curious to know how the public will respond to an $85 tour. Well, yeah, we as tourpreneurs, we get way too obsessive about what our competitors are doing. And our competitors are not our competitors. Our competitors are watching a movie. Our competitors are going on a walk. Uh, And so if we're starting from a position of what we think the customer will pay, but it's not a sustainable business, the best case scenario is that we create a very successful product that loses us money every single time. And that's not what you want to do. We need to start from a place where we collectively, as, as entrepreneurs here, are making money. Uh, we need to be able to, to sustain this thing. And doing a $10 tour is not going to work in the long scale. scale. Like I appreciate what Steve and his team are doing over at, at Walks to use virtual tours to drive their offline bookings. Because when I did that Tower of London tour, I got a voucher yes. to do a future tour. Yeah. That's a, a great, innovative concept. But I think if you talk to Steve, I bet he would tell you, that this is a short-term strategy because that's not unless they're getting you know ten people per booking or more. I can't see them as breaking even. I have no idea what the numbers are, but from my perspective, like you got to start from that audacious number and then justify it, justify it like as much as you can. There are people who are price insensitive who may not be part of our orbit because we're scrappy. We're young tourpreneurs, just like a lot of us here, and we are just like just trying our best to to make ends meet. But there are people for whom price is not an issue. They just want to be assured that it's going to be good and the person's going to show up at the time they say they're going to show up and that this is a reputable company and they're willing to pay a hundred bucks for it. You know, I have people who will spontaneously buy, I had someone spontaneously buy an item on a tour that they already spent over a hundred dollars for and they spent another like hundred dollars on a physical item that they didn't know they were going to buy. It was like a, a, a grinder, salt and pepper grinder at the markets. Fascinating. Yeah. So there's people out there that will spend this amount. Stop thinking of yourself as the customer for these is my biggest message for people. Yeah. It's fascinating because when I'm in person on a tour, I do that. You should see how many tea bags I've got downstairs from my trip to the Bahamas in January. I went to this tea store right? and they had every tea for every ailment. I, I ended up buying and it's all still in the cupboard. Yeah. I spent a fortune. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow. So it's interesting if that transposes to the virtual experience as well, where they're in that mindset to buy what they're seeing. Yeah, I agree. The e-commerce aspect of this is interesting. I'm less excited about becoming a retailer. It's not something I I went over to, but um, we'll see how that goes. Still early days yet. 
Yeah. To me, the other thing that makes it interesting though is that, that the medium is the message. That that idea is that the Amazon Explore program is fundamentally changing what a virtual experience is not a Zoom. It is a proprietary video software that reinvents what video experiences can be. And that's the that's the thing that makes me think that what they're doing is bang on the money. Like it's exactly what we should be looking at. I think that we need to be going one of two ways right now. It's either the Amazon way where it's private one-to-one experiences, very high value. Or if we want to go the way of Arigato tours and charging the 10 or $15 on there, we need to massively scale that up. You can't have a, a that sort of event for five or 10 or 15 or even 50 people. You should have it for 5,000 people. You should have it for 50,000 people. We should be treating it like a Twitch live streamer. Like if you, I don't know if you've, I've yeah, been yeah. spending time on Twitch recently as I like learn more about the video space. And right. these live streamers are making serious money playing video games, which is, I play a lot of Call of Duty. I like... Hey, do you get Cold War? Do you get the latest one? I haven't gotten it yet. I need to. I've been on Warzone. I'm too cheap for Cold War. Right. <laughs> I've added you, though, as a gamer tag. We should have a tour for newer Call of Duty group. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely should. We absolutely should. <laughs> but, you know, I like this stuff. And I still think that it's just, I don't understand Twitch. It's like a concept that people watch other people play the video games. I, I love that people have done it. But if that sort of thing can have people streaming and have tens of thousands of viewers live and giving money and making people serious money at the same time, why can't we do the same thing with our tours? Um, and so I think we need to either look at one of two routes. We have to go the one-on-one private high-value route or the massive scale low-value route. But the in-between, the taking the small group tours and just having them be online is never going to work. And I just I think we need to stop doing that because it doesn't make business sense. People don't see the value in the small group tours, and yet we're taking on all the baggage of the small group tours of having the uh, recurring resource, the cost of, of having a tour guide. We need to have this tour guide be utilized across thousands of people simultaneously. You mentioned earlier on that you're using a gimbal and all of that. What what equipment are you using exactly for the Amazon Explore product? I'm kind of been dictated uh, by Amazon what equipment to use. Okay. So they have they have certain approved pieces of kit that are on there, but they're standard off the shelf, like Samsung style right. uh, devices and all that. But I, th- I think less than the actual specific model of things to get. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is just spend some money on the stuff. Like I got um, a Gorilla Pod, but I got a knockoff one. The Gorilla Pods are those tripods where it has yeah. little balls in them, so you can twist them around different things. And I got like a $30 one. I should have gotten a $120 one because it immediately like lost its luster. It didn't stay wrapped around. Same thing with the gimbals. You can get gimbals for cheap, uh, like 50 bucks. People should be spending 150, 200 bucks on a gimbal. If you're really going to seriously use this thing over time, like that's what you need to do. Same thing with the device you use. So if you're going to use a, a phone, probably don't have it be your phone because you're going to have notifications popping up all the time, have a, have a dedicated device for it. Or if you don't, then find a way to switch the settings that everything else is off. There's no other data coming in, just this one experience that's on there. But in terms of specific devices, I think like we have a lot of mainstream options from Apple to Samsung and all the rest, and all of them kind of work the same. Excellent. Have you been experimenting? I think you mentioned this at Groovember, uh, experimenting with, with TikTok, talking a video. Yeah. You've been having fun with that? I am. I much to the chagrin of my wife, who tells me I'm much too old for it. She's completely right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the demographic for this thing, but I I think it's really interesting uh, as as a concept. You log on there, and it's it's really easy to quickly dismiss it because it has some just really dumb content on there. It's really popular with like preteen kids, basically. 
who are doing this dances and not very good content. Just like any social media platform, though, it only works for you if you work with it and you tell it what you like. So you have right. to go search people out, follow them. But um, like, if people want to get sold on this thing, I'll tell you some accounts to look for. Look at Planet Money. They're a great podcast in the U.S. And they've got this amazing guy who does really strange, funny economic explainer videos. Hmm. Um, look at Hank Green, who's a vlogger on YouTube. And he's gone on there and he kind of embraces the kind of weird space that it's in because all the videos have to be less than a minute. And also look up, you'll see, on, I, I kind of went off brand this week, look up Ratatouille Musical. Uh, it's an incredibly collaborative space. Uh, people had the idea that someone should do a musical version of Ratatouille, the <laughs> Disney movie, the Pixar yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, and I found out about it because this Australian artist did a song and it's a just banger. It was a really good song. Then I started looking at others and people got so someone did a Hamilton version of the Ratatouille musical with like rapping like Lin Manuel Miranda. Someone took one of the songs someone else did and they were a yeah. set designer and they built the set for it and like they got a cardboard and they like you can duet two videos and put them together. And so with the song underneath it, they showed the stage revealing it's like a rotating stage, and someone else did the choreography for it. And so it's this really interesting community. That's on there. Look, I haven't found a way to justify it in any sort of business yeah, terms. Right. But as we see now, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter have all come out with competitor products of similar ilk. And so it's worth at least understanding that my, my first video on TikTok went semi-viral. I had like 17,000 views on it. Wow. Um, because outrage sells on social media. And I knew that. And so I was very calculated. I did a video about how Australians don't understand s'mores. And they right. don't. It's a real frustration for me. <laughs> they don't have they don't have graham crackers. They screw up the marshmallows. They don't have the right yeah. chocolate. And so I just went in there and like I got all these views because there was outrage. But most of the comments were like, "Go back to your own damn country." Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah. But you know, any any feedback is good feedback. Any publicity is good publicity. Yeah, I haven't looked at it, John, because I, I have enough distractions in life as it is. I just like, another one to the list. You know, I'm trying to like shut my phone down for several hours a day just to crack on with some work, and I just know that. I mean, know. look, it'd be very wise to not have another distraction. At the same time, if I want to make an argument for you on TikTok, it's every minute you spend on Facebook is wasted time because no yeah. one's going there anymore. Like it's just like it's not our demographic. If you want to be looking at the next generation of yeah. customers, you need to understand TikTok. Remarkable. Just to wrap up then, so Amazon Explore, obviously this is in beta right now. In your professional opinion, do you think it's here to stay? Yeah, I do. I think that just looking at the investment they put into it, I think that they are seem to be committed to staying for a kind of years long time scale to see if it works or not. So in my view, anything past three months from now is forever yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because things are changing so quickly. So for me, yeah, I think uh, we should all be looking at what Amazon is doing on there as the first player to really come into the video space and innovate, not just to put Zoom on stuff like we see Airbnb is doing. And how worried do you think the major OTA should be of Amazon right now? Yeah, very. I mean, I think OTAs are, we'll see what they can do. I think I just actually met with my Get Your Guide team. Uh, I was just came back from Sydney yesterday and I had a meeting with them. I think Get Your Guide's doing really interesting stuff in terms of, again, innovating in that space and and um, looking at how they can do something new and different. But there's so many OTAs out there. I think we're going to see the same thing we're seeing in the tour operator space. We're going to see this bushfire and only a few are going to survive on there. I, I agree. I think next year we're going to see less OTAs. Um, hearing all sorts of rumors right now. Such an opportunity for us. It's so good yeah. for us. I mean, it's, it's tragic for the people who work for those places. Yes. 
But for us, a lot of us, depot included, are over-reliant on OTAs. And it's a problem we've had for years. And so now is the time that we can kind of think more consciously. We Again, we cannot be losing money off a single booking. And so if we have a commission arrangement with an OTA that puts us in a money-losing position, now is the time to change it. Now we have the, the ability, the negotiating power to do it. One more thing I just want to mention to the listeners. So Speakeasy is this thing. The website is not terribly updated, but uh, we have been working a lot to try to find a couple more launch partners. So we've got one, two launch partners right now um, that are helping us test out the software. We're looking for someone who's trying to do mass scale events. Uh, so something where they can be the MC, but then have a bunch of people collaborating from within different tables. Uh, so we operate kind of like on a pub quiz. You listen to an MC who's speaking in a one-way video communication, but then you have your table of mates who are talking. So if anyone here listening is looking at doing something like this or just curious about it, running events for you know more than 50 people, um, please reach out to me. Uh, look, You can go to speakeasyevents.live on there and have a look. We are not like accepting customers just freely on the website, but the tourpreneur audience is exactly the kind of, I'm sure there's someone in there who's looking to do the same thing. And we're looking for someone who can help us out, similar to how the guys at Magpie did it, where they had a few early launch partners and then that helped them get to the next phase. And that was Speakeasy Live? Speakeasyevents.live. Cool. Well, I will add all the links to Depot, to your Amazon Explore tour, and uh, to your events on the show notes, which we can find at tourpreneur.com forward slash one, two, six. I'm sorry. It's taken a hundred and odd episodes to get you back on, John. I always enjoy no talking worries, to man. you because you're always trying new things. And uh, that's what I like when you, you roll up your sleeves, get in there and see what works. And I enjoy learning from you a great deal. Thank you. I enjoy listening to the podcast. I can't believe you've done so many episodes in a year's time. Nice work. Yeah, absolutely. We're just almost at our 100,000th download. So uh, really, really wow. proud of that. That you know, awesome. just proud of the community for taking that time to listen to a show when they could be listening to something that's a ghost story or true crime or mm-hmm. gaming or whatever, but taking that hour every week to listen to a podcast that's going to help them grow their business by learning from others. So I'm really proud of our listeners, to be honest, John. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll be on the Facebook group if anyone has any questions with it. Marvelous. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.